Welcome to It's a Good Life, the podcast for entrepreneurs, where it's all about growing yourself and your business. Before we begin, I want to remind you about our ad-free option. Go to It's a Good Life on the Apple Podcast app. You'll see a banner under the logo to remove ads and unlock early access to episodes. It's just five bucks a month, and there's even a free trial. Either way, continue listening to It's a Good Life, and here's our man, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you, and welcome to today's program. We have a very special guest we're going to interview today. His name is Matt Mayberry, and Matt is from the Chicago area and uh, was a well-known high school football player, played for Indiana, had a great career as a linebacker, and then played for the Bears, where uh, early on in his career got injured against my San Diego Chargers, of all people. And he's used that opportunity and those experiences And now he has a great gift and a great passion in the area of culture. And he's been speaking on culture. He's written a great book called Culture is the Way, for those of you tuning in. It's how leaders at every level build an organization for speed, impact, and excellence. There's nothing about those words I don't like. Matt Mayberry, welcome to the show. We're delighted to have you. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. I'm excited to be here. Great. So I, I kind of alluded a little bit. We were talking before the program began a little bit about your high school career, being a rival of my buddy Joe Nego's family over at LT in the western suburbs of Chicago. But tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from. And I'd love to know not only your background, as we talked about, but how did you end up becoming so fascinated with culture and its effect on business and organizations? Yeah. So, you know, I went to Hinsdale South High School, which is the opposite, right next door to your your, your good friends, uh, you know, where, where his kids went to high school. So Hinsdale Central is probably what you were thinking of. But I went to Hinsdale South. But I think to give you some context about, you know, kind of who Matt Mayberry is, you know, I think it'd be really beneficial to kind of take a step back even before I got to high school. Um, you know, because I think anytime someone hears, you know, Division One college athlete and then gets an opportunity to play at the professional level, everyone always thinks that, you know, from the time that person was born, they must have had a gift that, you know, everybody around them knew that they were going to be a professional athlete. And for me, that was the furthest thing from the truth. You know, I'm a former recovering drug addict, um, three near-death experiences. Uh, every drug you could possibly think of, I've done it besides heroin. If I wasn't terrified of needles, I probably would have done that too. And, and actually, Brian, my best sport growing up was baseball. I was projected to get drafted straight out of high school, go straight to the major leagues, sign a $10 million contract. But I got kicked off my baseball team because I got caught stealing one of my teammates' wallets while all of my teammates were out at practice one afternoon, I stayed behind because when everyone was getting dressed to go to practice, I saw all the cash that was sitting in one of my teammates' wallets, an actually good friend of mine, and thought about all the drugs that I could buy with that money. So that was the life that Matt Mayberry was living at 16 years old, which really that started at 13 years old. So even though I had two wonderful parents, still married to this day, a great younger brother, um, I had everything that you... Th- you know, would think that, hey, this this young man's going to grow up to make a difference in, in the world. Um, but at that point, starting at 13 years old, it couldn't be further from the truth. My high school guidance counselor actually told my two parents after the first week of just starting school that your son, Matt, will be dead or in prison before he ever gets the opportunity to turn 18 years old. So that that was, you know, kind of my, you know, childhood. What led you down that road, Matt? Why does a kid in the western suburbs with two solid parents 
How did you end up in that world? You know, great question, Brian. No, no matter where I go in the world, whether I'm in front of a group of Fortune 100, you know, executives or a university's football team, I'll always say, you are who you hang out with. Show me your five closest associates. I'll show you where your future's headed. And for me, you know, being the popular athlete, you know, I just, I, I started hanging around with the drug addicts, the people that were, you know, selling drugs, um, the people that were committing the worst of worst crimes that you could possibly think of. Uh, because at the time, those were the popular kids. So, you know, that, that, that's just the route that I, so I started to think like them. I started to develop their habits. Um, and ultimately that's the life that I started to live because of who I was hanging around with. So how did you get it turned around? So I got it turned around because my, after I got kicked off the baseball team, my high school came back and said, Matt, you know, you're this incredibly gifted athlete, but th there's no more chances. You know, we've already given you 20 chances. You, we already kicked you off the baseball team. But you still have football. But the only way you're not going to get expelled from this high school is if you, you you have to go to a drug treatment facility for one month. You have to go to this drug treatment facility to prove to us that you want to still embark on this journey, graduate high school, and still you know utilize the game of football to maybe build a future for yourself. So long story short, I did go to that drug treatment facility, not because I wanted to get sober, but because my grandfather, someone that I was closest to at that point in my life, he offered me $500 if I was to start the process of building uh, a better future for Matt Mayberry, you know, his grandson at the time. And, you know, as a drug addict, I started to think of all the drugs that I could buy with that $500. 500 bucks is a lot. Yeah. So, you know, I, I didn't take ownership of my life. So that's why my life didn't change within the first two weeks of that facility. But, you know, long story short, what, what, what was the turning point for my life was almost at the end of that program, I had the opportunity to come home and eat dinner with my family. Uh, and my father, uh, someone that I was very close to at that point in my life and uh, someone that made a great deal in my life, I played college football at Auburn University, iron worker, you know, for, you know, over 45 years. So one of the toughest human beings I've ever met throughout the course of my life. Uh, but during this dinner and this interaction with my father, he just completely broke down in tears. And I never saw my father shed a tear in my entire life. So this moment of just you know, him breaking down and just saying that him and my mother can't go through this anymore. It, it changed my entire life. And that was the turning point, Brian, that really changed the direction of my life. I never believed in epiphanies or moments in time that could just drastically alter one's life until that day. I, I'll never forget going back into my room and just after that interaction, just vividly seeing my father break down in tears. And I saw in the corner of my bed because he used to leave motivational books just laying around the house, just hoping one day I'd flip through 10 to 15 pages. There was a book by Zig Ziglar called See You at the Top. Oh, my boy. <laughs> the great Zig Ziglar. Um, and it just talked about the power of goals. It was already bookmarked about the power of writing down your goals, envisioning your future and where you want to be and the things you want to do. And I'll never forget, I took out a three by five note card and I wrote down on that note card, I will get a division one college scholarship for football, lost baseball, my best sport, but I still had football. And that was a turning point for me, Brian. I went to Indiana. And then, as you said, in my introduction there, I did get an opportunity to play in the national football league, but got hurt in my very first game. So, you know, I know that's kind of a lot in there, but I think for context purposes, um, Brilliant. you know, that that's kind of where I come from and kind of what I, you know, been through throughout the course of my life. And part of the gift, right? So here you are, you know, you, your dad, a man you admire, but he had all these old books. Even though he was an iron worker, he was obviously a self-educated man. You know, Zig is a personal mentor to me for 
decades and a great friend. And I will tell you this, he's smiling in heaven right now as you tell that story. And now here you are, you've come full tilt. What a great encouragement. Maybe someone here today is in a bad spot. Maybe they have a kid in a bad spot. You know, the scriptures say, train up a child in the way they should go. And when they're old, they'll not depart from it. So you never lose hope. You never give up. And uh, sometimes it's, there are those moments of clarity and moments of truth. And your old man with his vulnerability shared that and you took it to heart. And here you are today. I mean, you look like butter wouldn't melt in your mouth. You're fit as a fiddle. You're speaking all over the world. And, and you got a great book and you've got a great career. So tell me how you ended up in the culture world. I mean, I, I, I get the whole, we've had every athlete. We've had Emmett Smith and Magic Johnson. And my wife was an Olympic volleyball player. We've had lots of sports people. How did the sports guy who, and by the way, some of the best sports guys I ever met are the people who didn't get what they wanted. The best coaches I ever met, the most productive people are when the dream was artificially ripped away from them, which is what happened to you in a preseason game where you, you know, you busted up your leg. How does the guy going from being injured on a football field playing against the Chargers end up in the culture business? How does that happen? You know, what you just said there, you know, Brian, if you, if I was with you in person right now, you see the hair sticking up on my arm because I, I believe that's to be so true. Um, you know, I, I envisioned this career of seven, eight years, nine years in the NFL, and I got hurt. My, you know, I didn't even have an NFL career. You know, I deemed it as a major failure. Um, you know, especially everything I had to overcome in my life. But to answer your question specifically about how did I get in the culture space? So when I did get hurt and I realized that my NFL dream wasn't going to materialize the way I had wished, um, I got asked to speak at a leadership event. You know, with Stedman Graham, uh, Oprah Winfrey's boyfriend for you know yep. over thirty years. Well. Great guy. Comes right here to La Costa. He's here this morning. Actually. Great guy. Right down the street. I, Fantastic yeah. guy. Um, so I met him at a charity event a month before I got injured. And we just started to have conversation. And he he loved my story. And we connected. Um, and when I he found out, his team found out that I got injured uh, during that preseason game, he asked if I wanted to speak at a leadership event. And my first reaction was, I don't know. You know, I got a D in public speaking in college. I'm, I'm terrified to speak in front of a group of 20 people, let alone 500. Uh, long story short, I, I do that event. And even though th- that particular event, I, I started just sharing a couple ideas of leadership, what I've learned throughout some of the best coaches through my athletic career. Um, what I noticed after the, that event was so many leaders across the country that were at that event. They went back to their selective states and cities and and their organizations. And the deep yearning, the deep desire to build culture, because there was so much confusion out there. What is culture? What does it entail? How do you build a great culture? So many books and articles about it, but it's this soft, fluffy nonsense. Like, How do we build a culture that actually drives behavior and helps our organization become more successful and make a bigger impact? So, so that's really what drove my desire and really my obsession for culture because I, I got a front row view at how to actually cultivate and build a world-class culture really starting in college when I went to Indiana because Indiana, anybody that follows college football, they are not a predominant Big Ten football program, right? I mean, it's a basketball state, basketball school, but I met a man who, who was my head coach at the time, Terry Hetner, um, and we won one game when I first got to Indiana. And I, I, I saw it front and center. This man just redirected and completely transformed the old beliefs and mentalities of what Indiana football really was at the core of it. And then one year after, we're playing for a bowl game in Oklahoma, against Oklahoma State in Phoenix, Arizona. You know, just because yeah, he was of a great coach. Yeah, I remember. Unbelievable. So, so that was what I saw because we didn't have better talent. You know, he wasn't getting five star recruits. 
it, it really started with the, the environment that he cultivated day in and day out, the beliefs, which ended up driving our behaviors. Um, so that's really where I got that first class education of what culture really is and how do you build it from that man, Terry Hepner. And you obviously had this energy that you were given. I mean, Stedman knows a lot of people and he decides to ask you to come speak, this kid who's just didn't make the NFL with an injury. And so obviously, you know, I, I'd say for myself, I had a, my first time I was speaking, I had kind of a tuning fork experience where it was like, oh, I didn't think I could do this, but it turns out people kind of like this. And, you know, my bride sitting there going, man, you got a gift. You need to do this. Did you have that experience when you first spoke? I did. I'll never forget when I come off stage, I look to one of my friends and I, I said, that was awful. Get me out of here. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, look to the left. And I looked to the left and there was a group of at least 250 people waiting in line to talk to me after that speech. And some of the, the women and men in that, in that event uh, even had tears in their eyes. You know, and, and to see the impact, you know, because I had no idea what I was doing. I had no structure to my talk. I had no, you know, there was no structure to my stories and how I was going to integrate from story to transition. And, but I spoke from the heart. And after that event, I walked out of there and realized that not only is it possibly going to fill the void of playing in a stadium of 85,000 people, but th there was a different, and you know this better than anybody, there was a different level of meaning and purpose. Of, of pouring into the life of another human being and seeing that impact right away. Well, I, I will say this. I tell people all the time, you know, I, I've done whatever, 2,500 seminars, three and a half million people. And my goal is now I really know what I'm doing. Now I really know how to structure a talk. Now I can really do this. But I want to remember that guy who had the chops to go on stage the first time and bring that innocence and energy every time, you know, because you know, where I'm at now is there's someone in the rooms hearing me for the first time. I don't want them to say, man, you should have heard him when, you know, so it's great stuff. So I want to dive into the meat here because, you know, for me, culture is a big thing. And, and a little bit on our background, we're the largest business coaching company in North America. And for the last six now coming on seven years, we've been the best place to work in San Diego. We have a great mission. We've got this phenomenal performance. And I got resumes when people can't find people to work. I have hundreds and hundreds of resumes sitting out there of people who want to come to work here. And when I read your stuff and I watched a bunch of your talks, and you're very good, by the way, you know, I'm the guy talking to these folks all the time. It's great when they can hear a different voice from a different perspective. Talk to me, first of all, how do you define culture? What is culture and what is it not? Oh, great question. You know, there's two ways I define it. You know, I heard this one recently and I, I thought it was so perfectly summed up that I, I just have to share it because it really, it's really been on my heart for the past few weeks. Culture is how your people feel on Sunday night before getting ready to start a new work week. You know, when I heard that, it's just, it's just, it really struck a chord with me. And then from when you look at a business context, I mean, culture is truly behavior at scale. It's how do the men and women within your company, the four walls of your company, how do they act when the CEO is not around? What is their daily behavior? Is it adding and contributing to the overall mission and vision of where that company wants to go? Or is it degrading? And, and paralyzing that organization from getting to where they want to go. So for me, that, that's really how I look at it, right? It's not fluff. It's not a leader reciting the core values. It's not hanging posters on the wall. Um, and it's not even company perks. It's as great as company perks are, you know, sleep pods on every floor of the headquarters, you know, not having a manager that challenges you and holds you accountable, um, you know, getting off at 3.45 p.m. on a Tuesday. 
you know, those are perks. And I think what happened, Brian, is a lot of leaders, they've really had the misconception of what culture is. It's behavior at scale. And its very first job and mission is to really accelerate the execution of that company's strategy. Yeah. And and look, I, I think this, and again, you know, I'm an old dog for the hard road. And, you know, you're at the earlier starts of your career, but you, you got you got a lot going on here. Let me say this, speaking on behalf of myself and my observations of the marketplace, right? A great business is someone who finds a need, fills a need, does it better than anybody else. Right now, we've gone from, you know, I'm in California. So we were competing with all these, you know, Silicon Valley companies where, hey, we got the ping pong tables, we got the pool, we got the in-house chef, we've got the meditation rooms, we've got this. And look, we've done that stuff. I had, you know, in our main headquarters, we had a full-time gym and a staff and all that stuff. At the end of the day, you had that dynamic, which is work doesn't look like work, bosses don't look like bosses. Management doesn't look like management. And then we ran into COVID where everybody went home. I had 250 employees working from home. Now I have 58 employees working out of state. We have Good Life Fridays, one Friday every month. People don't come in. We take off a huge amount of time over Christmas and have people fired up when they are fired up to come back. But I would say in the context of a post-COVID era, I believe, and I, I, you know, my brother and I, we have a, a board meeting tomorrow to talk about how do we reignite our culture, which was so tight when everybody was in the building together five days a week. We have great performance. We have great staff, maybe more talent than we've ever had. But this dynamic of culture has to be able to now breed out beyond boundaries, physical space, being in connection with one another. So I think your message is so powerful for this particular period of time. I think companies are really struggling with it. It's not some fluffy foo-foo thing. You know, if I'm speaking practically, it really impacts the bottom line. It really impacts customer service. It really impacts how your staff treat your audience, your customers, acquire your customers. So talk about this whole dynamic of basically why does a company's culture impact their bottom line? I mean, there's so many ways. I think that, you know, from even what you just shared there, you know, about, I mean, you know, when you look at it from the core of it, right? I mean, as far as even retaining and, you know, attracting top talent. You know, how do you align an organization, right? When you look at, uh, you know, the daily behaviors that are going to help bring our values to life, a compelling vision of the future of where that organization's going, you know, but I look at it from how do you, you know, culture at its core, how does it add to the bottom line? You know, culture and strategy are connected. A lot of people, there's been this belief that strategy and culture are disconnected. They're two separate things. While they may be two separate initiatives, at the end of the day, the greatest organizations in the world, they truly understand that strategy does not achieve itself on its own. That is where culture comes in play. And that is what where, you know, if you don't have a great world-class thriving culture, I mean, there's no way you're going to achieve and accelerate the strategy, uh, you know, and execute that to its fullest degree. So for me, you know, when you look at the bottom line, you know, if not only talent development and recruitment efforts and Uh, You know, you look at your talent aspect, you know, you got to look at it from an innovation standpoint. You have to look at it from, you know, a leadership standpoint, because all great organizations who have thriving world class cultures, the one thing they do have is they have transformational leaders. And from what your standpoint of what you said with COVID, you know, the other point to that, how does it affect the bottom line? You know, I look at it from a, you know, connecting the purpose, the very fabric, the DNA, the heart and soul of that company to all of its people. And for us. It's impact and improve the lives of people. That's our purpose. Exactly. That's what we're about. When we get down into the coaching side, it's to impact and improve the lives and livelihoods of people. So that, that's why we exist. And at the end of the day, when we have an all-hands meeting, 
you know, we're sharing the stories of the people who triple their income and saved their marriage and the transformational stories that they're part of. You know, and I have a brand that's a lot associated with me, but the truth of the matter is I'm nothing more than the nose on the airplane. And then the real key is to find the transformational leaders. You know, you talk about this cultural purpose statement. I think it's so much more powerful than just a mission statement. Just maybe for folks who haven't read the book yet, which obviously they're going to get, talk about the difference between this cultural purpose statement and a mission statement, because I think they're worlds apart. Yeah, so the cultural purpose statement is really an effort to define your culture. And what I mean by defining your culture, if you see 20 employees that work at the same company, nine out of 10 times, if you ask those 20 employees, what is your culture at XYZ company, you're going to get 19 different responses. And this is exactly what I've taken away and extracted from the game of football, right? Because the very best football coaches, they truly understand because you're going to have players, whether in college or in the NFL, from all walks of life that have experienced all different kinds of things throughout the course of their life, different levels of talent, different level of personality, different level of hardship. The most important thing is that we are defining the core mechanism of what makes our team and our unit be the best that we possibly can be. And that is where we have to define our culture of what it means to be a part of this organization, this team, what is the very core of being a successful and great teammate. And then what is that kind of mantra or that theme or that wording that I use in the book, which is what you're referring to, the cultural purpose statement. So basically what it is in its entirety is a way to internally define who we are. A mission statement for the most part is externally facing. It's the service and level that we're going to execute in the marketplace. It's what the impact we're going to have on our customers, suppliers, whatever that may be, right? The per- cultural purpose statement, the CPS, is to define us internally. So there's complete alignment, full expectations of what our organization, what our team stands for internally. Most importantly, our culture. No doubt. And it is big time. Let me ask you this, because I, this is just like, you know, an insight piece. What do you tell groups right now, like with me, who have either people working from home or people working out of the area? How do you keep that glue together? How do you make that cultural purpose statement mean everything? You know, they say you need proximity to have community. How do you build that community when proximity is not as easy as it used to be? It has to be front in mind. You know, one of the things I, you know, it sounds, you know, so simplistic, but I think common sense isn't always common practice. You know, and I think the very best leaders, what they do is they really simplify the process. Everyone looks at, let's say, the, the, the football teams that build the dynasties or the organizations that continually transform year after year and, and beat the competition. You know, the one thing that they're always doing is they're never settling for complacency. They're never trying to get too cute, too sexy. They're always trying, how can we simplify the very core and the mechanism of our culture, our organization, our go-to-market strategy? So for your you know, question, how do you keep that front in mind if people are scattered all throughout the country, if some are in the office, some are at home? I truly believe it comes down to leadership. It comes down to leadership in the sense of, are you having those one-on-one human-to-human interactions and being complete, leading with complete empathy, vulnerability, but also connecting the very fabric of your mission or your cultural purpose statement in those one-on-one conversations? That is what I've personally seen have the most transformational effect. When the leaders are keeping that front and center in mind, and they're not only saying it at an all-hands meeting or a company-wide initiative or event, but it's, it's happening in the day-to-day with the one-on-one human-to-human interactions. Who's doing it well? Who are some of the companies you've either spoken for or you've met or people you've seen in the marketplace that you admire and you think, these guys got it going on? Uh, Microsoft is without a doubt a company that's you know, doing it at a very high level. J.P. Morgan Chase is an organization that's doing it at a very high level. Uh, kind of one of the case studies that I, I use in the book is Southern Glaciers Wine and Spirits. 
Um, you know, I kind of take when they they started the process and all the way through that journey. Um, they've been, you know done an incredible job from that. A direct Federal Credit Union, another client of mine, they've done an exceptional job. Um, a Legion. Uh, so I mean, there's just so many and so many examples. Um, you know of and that's key. That it's good for people to know. Like there's a bunch out there. I mean, one question I'd have for you as you think about these people. Somebody starting out. We have people who have been in all different shapes and sizes. We have hundreds of thousands of small business owners that listen to this program, right? And they're like, I don't have this department. I have that, that, that department. I got 10 people. I got eight people. I got 12 people. If someone's just starting out and they wanted to build a great culture, where should they start? You have to define what that is first with what we just talked about with the cultural purpose statement. And Brian, what I, what I hear, because I speak at a lot of events for small business owners and uh, you know, in, even individual sole proprietors, you know, in realtor events all over the country. You know, I think one of the biggest, you know, things I hear is, well, I'm in business for myself or I only have five people. So, you know, that culture talk is that that's more for Google and Microsoft and the big companies. And to me, that's a it's, it's, a, it's a massive, massive mistake, because even if you have five or 10 people on your team, you may think you're small, but you can never let your small business have you be small minded. And I think that, you know, one of the most powerful transformations I've seen is when those small business owners do attack and work and cultivate culture like those big companies, because you have an incredible opportunity to impact the lives of those men and those women within your company, five or 10 people, whatever that may be, at a very more transformational and direct way than the organizations with 100,000 people. Well, that was worth the price of admission right there. You want to have a small business, don't be small minded. And uh, one of the things I've heard about you, Matt Mayberry, from a lot of folks, because we are connected to a lot of folks, is how diligent you are in your research before speaking to a group and finding out exactly what the need of the audience is. And by the way, I'll give you an acknowledgement. There's two guys. I've booked 500 people in, over my career. The two people, one who became a great friend is Lou Holtz, who's kind of a, a mentor to me. And a, we've been friends for decades. He's spoken for me a dozen times and we've played golf together. And Great speaker. Every time he spoke for our organization, he called our team as if it was the first time he ever spoke. What's the needs? And when people would come, he'd give the same talk, but with slight variations, people go, man, that was just perfect. And then the other guy was Joe Theismann. And Joe did his homework. And the only guy I've heard who does his homework like that is you, Matt Mayberry, which is your way to practice because on the day you come to speak to an audience, you're creating community and culture with the audience on those days. And I've heard that about you. The book is called Culture is the Way. It's an excellent read. It's endorsed by some very good friends of mine. And I think if you want to have a small business that has big numbers and big success and a big culture, you can't afford to be small-minded. So get the book, Enhance the Mind. Our goal is to bring Matt to the marketplace. We have a few great events that we have intentions to bring him to all of you. And so stay tuned. But I want you to read the book in advance of that. Matt, we have, no matter who we've had on this program, we finished at five questions and it's just our little tradition and it really gives people a different size and shape. You don't know what these questions are, but it gives people a different insight into who you are. So number one is what's the single best piece of advice you've ever been given? If you want something you never had, you must be willing to do something you've never done. Nice. Where'd you get that? My father. Ah, good man. God bless him. Is he still alive, your dad? <laughs> he is. He is. He is. What's his first name? Gary. Gary, I have a brother, Gary. Well, Gary Mayberry, you've you done good. And the, the river of tears that flowed, uh, uh, a powerful new growth took place in the life of your son. What one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? Cooking. Cooking, all right. A lot of times we get musical. People want to sing and dance, but that's a good one. All right, great. 
What book has been most instrumental in your life? That's such a tough one. I write books because reading books has transformed my life. There's really two that stick out to me. See You at the Top is which I mentioned by the great, the great Zig Ziglar. Uh, of course. Another book that, that really for the season of life I read it, uh, just completely transformed my life. And he happens to be a great friend of mine, Matthew Kelly, The Rhythm of Life. Oh, yes. I've heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Good for you. Well, Zig is my man. There's a picture right here in my office. I did a thing with Zig where I went and interviewed him when he wasn't able to really speak anymore. And we stood there together and he passed over his old <laughs> pump. You remember his pump he would talk about? And he handed the pump to me and he goes, okay, it's yours now, son. So yeah, he's like a father to me. So I'm glad to hear see you at the top resonates with the younger guys out there who are the next generation Absolutely. of great public speakers. One movie you watch over and over again. Anytime it's on, you stop and check out of even a few minutes of it. What's the one movie that does it for you? I think all the Rockies have got to be in there. Um, and then Rudy, <laughs> the great Rudy. Come on. I knew Rudy. I mean, I was shocked. I mean, the Indiana guy, come on. And we had Rudy speak at our event. Rudy spoke at our event, and it was the first time he'd ever met Lou Holtz. It was at the Notre Dame-Boston College game where Notre Dame's up by 40, and Holtz actually fought for Rudy to be able to make that movie. All those scenes that are in Notre Dame Stadium were during a game that actually took place live. Oh, wow. And it was, Holtz was the one who actually, so they took an extra long halftime, and Holtz said, let's run him up and beat him bad. <laughs> so that's uh, Rudy Rudiker. Yeah, my kids are sick of seeing that movie. And last but not least, what does the good life mean to Matt Mayberry? The good life means to Matt Mayberry to live life on your terms with the people you love, make an extraordinary difference in the world, however you perceive that to be. Well, isn't that something? I really appreciate you sharing your story up front. You know, I really do. You're fit and healthy, a good-looking dude, and you shared your own story. And I believe it's out of our pain that people often find healing and encouragement. And so many people, especially in the speaking business, are, are not willing to share their shortcomings. Absolutely. So for you to lead with that was very special. I don't take it for granted. I know you have helped a lot of people here today in ways we'll never know. Just like Zig Ziglar wrote a book and he's long gone, but he helped a young man turn his life around. So thank you for that today. Thanks for this gift. The book is Culture is the Way. Get a copy of it. Dive in. It's really going to help you build a culture. And in the world we live in today, that's disassociated and distracted and disconnected, having a powerful culture is the greatest way to advance in business. And whether you have a small business or a huge business, it's the way to go. Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. It was an absolute joy to meet you. And I look forward to spending a little more time with you on stage here very soon. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Thanks so much. Great. Well, we always leave with the queen of culture. Her name is Therese Buffini, and she has a little Irish blessing for all of us. Thanks for joining us. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Maybe somebody needed to hear what Matt Mayberry had to share today. May the road rise up to meet you. And may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time.